So Luke chapter 9, 51 to 56. If you understood what the Samaritans were like, you might respond, what's wrong with James and John calling down fire from heaven on them? First of all, the Samaritans were in the way, right in the middle of our land. Galilee was on the north, Judah was on the south, Samaria was in the middle. What should have been Jewish land was Samaritan land, and so to get from Galilee down to Jerusalem, you had to go through Samaria, or you had to go all the way around the other side of the Jordan and back around to avoid Samaria, which is what most of us Jews chose to do. And you can bet that every time we did, we resented that the Samaritans were living right in the middle of our land. Second, the Samaritans had a false religion. A twisted, warped version of Judaism. And to make it worse, they insisted that their religion was the true one. They claimed that their temple on Mount Gerizim was where God actually wanted to be worshipped. But we all know from scripture that Jerusalem is the right place to worship. But they could hold on to their false religious site because they rejected most of the Bible. They didn't recognize David or the Psalms or Isaiah or the prophets. All they recognized were the first five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And these, they changed to suit their own fancies, even changing the Holy Ten Commandments so that the tenth one said, Thou shalt worship the Lord on Mount Gerizim. How dare they twist and change God's holy word? Third, the Samaritans were stubborn and and intolerant in their false views. When Jewish pilgrims did pass peaceably through their land on the way to Jerusalem for religious feasts, instead of providing us with hospitality, or, or at least just leaving us alone, the Samaritans would actually heckle us and mock us and shame us. One time they actually sneaked into Jerusalem during the Passover time and they defiled God's holy temple by scattering unclean bones in it, which of course shut down the temple and ruined our feast. It's a wonder the holy God didn't strike them dead right there. Fourth, the Samaritans were cowards and compromisers. Back during the Hellenistic Empire, when the Greeks were pressuring us and persecuting us to turn us from the true God to adopt Greek ways, the Samaritans, like chickens, caved in. While we Jews were suffering for our faith, being persecuted and tortured and killed in our determination to stay faithful, the Samaritans were rededicating their temple on Mount Gerizim to the god Zeus to avoid trouble with the Greeks. That's why when we finally got free from the Greeks, our leader and high priest, John Hyrcanus, marched north and destroyed the Gerizim temple to remove that abomination. Fifth, the Samaritans were violent, committing atrocities against Jewish people. One time while the Jews from Galilee were passing through Samaria to attend a feast in Jerusalem, the Samaritans actually massacred are innocent pilgrims, striking them down in cold blood. Can you believe it? That's what kind of people they were. So here we are making arrangements for Jesus to go to Jerusalem. Jesus, God's own Messiah, God's Holy One, 
And the Samaritans, true to form, refused to have him. Refused to give him a place to stay overnight on his way. They reject God's own true Messiah. What an affront to God. That was the last straw. That's why we were ready to call down fire from heaven to be done with them once and for all. But Jesus wouldn't let us. And I couldn't understand why. After all, back in the days of Elijah in 2 Kings 1, when the Samaritan king Ahaziah had sent troops to arrest Elijah, Elijah had called down fire from heaven to destroy them twice. And clearly Jesus was greater than Elijah, more holy, more important, more powerful. We had seen it, Peter, John, and I, on the mountain where Jesus was transfigured. Moses, Elijah, talking with Jesus about the exodus and then the voice from heaven which said, we were to listen to Jesus. Moses, too, in, in fact, had dealt with God's enemies. Poisonous snake, snakes took care of some of them. The ground swallowed others up. Still others fell in the desert to plagues. And yes, some were devoured by fire from heaven. Moses, Elijah, they were holy men who had God's power. Jesus was too, even more so. And Jesus was teaching us as his disciples to use that power. So why wouldn't he let us call down fire on these rude, rebellious, godless, hateful, wicked Samaritans? Jesus had taught us that to reject him was to reject God. And these godless Samaritans had rejected him. Jesus had told us when he sent us out to proclaim the good news of the kingdom that if anyone rejected us, we should shake the dust off our feet as a warning against them. So why not fire from heaven now on these God-rejecting Samaritans? Jesus had the power to do it. He could give us that power. Why wouldn't he? Was it that the timing was premature? That Jesus wasn't ready to punish them yet? He seemed to work slow. John the Baptist had foretold how Jesus would come with power and judgment to punish God's enemies with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. But Jesus hadn't done that yet. Maybe he wanted to do it all at once later. To, to all God's enemies, not just a few at a time. Or maybe Jesus just had bigger fish to fry. Maybe he didn't want to mess around with a few Samaritans right now. Maybe he wanted to wait and destroy their whole nation. Or maybe Jesus wasn't as upset with the Samaritans as we were because he hadn't been there to see how rude they had been when they refused to make arrangements for his hospitality. Maybe Jesus was more mad at the Pharisees instead. God's own people who were against him. Maybe we should have been calling down fire on the Pharisees instead of the Samaritans. Or maybe on the Romans. After all, the Romans were the ones who, who made us coexist with the Samaritans against our will and against God's will, and the Romans oppressed us far worse than the Samaritans ever had. Or maybe our personal motives were wrong. After all, John and I can get a little hot-headed. Maybe we were too upset personally about this rude affront to Jesus. Maybe we took it too personally and that's why Jesus talked us down. Maybe we should have been more concerned about God's honor 
about how the Samaritans were rejecting God and dishonoring God instead of how we felt personally rejected. After all, we were just the messengers. Maybe if our own selfish anger hadn't gotten the best of us and we had been angry for God's sake, maybe then Jesus would have let us call down fire on the Samaritans. Why do you think Jesus wouldn't let us call down fire on the Samaritans? Well, with that question in mind, we take a look at today's passage. As today's story begins, Jesus has set his face resolutely for Jerusalem. He has done so, Luke tells us, because the time is approaching for him to be taken up to heaven. Taken up to heaven, that's an interesting way to put it, isn't it? Not to suffer and die on the cross, not to be crucified and then raised up again on the third day, but to be taken up to heaven. Now, that's what eventually happens, but only after two seemingly more important events happen. Jesus dies and Jesus rises again. Why does Luke point our attention not to Jesus' death, not to his resurrection, but to his being taken up to heaven? Could it be because Elijah was also taken up to heaven in a fiery horse and chariot? Could it be because there's a folk tradition among the Jews that Moses also, who didn't die in the usual way, was actually taken up into heaven? Perhaps again, as Luke did at the Transfiguration, he's closely connecting Jesus with these other great biblical figures, saying that Jesus too was so honored, or had, had so honored God, that, that in the end of his ministry, he too would be honored by God by being welcomed into God's presence in this special way. Whatever the reason, Jesus knows where he's headed. He knows that his time has come. He knows that his path leads him to and through Jerusalem, the, the holy city, God's special city, where David had once reigned over God's glorious kingdom, where God's own temple, the special place of God's presence stood, Jerusalem, that cultural, religious, and intellectual capital of God's own nation. That place of glory where the prophets had said God would one day set up an everlasting kingdom and the nations would stream to it, bringing their wealth and seeking to learn about God. And God's word would flow out from Jerusalem to bless, to bring peace, to make war cease, to establish justice and righteousness and goodness on the earth. Jesus had a date with destiny in Jerusalem and the time had come. So Jesus sets his face and resolutely heads for Jerusalem. He goes by the most direct route, not crossing the Jordan, not going the long way around to avoid Samaria, as many Galilean pilgrims did. No, Jesus plans to go straight through Samaria to Jerusalem. So what does he do? Listen carefully to the language. Jesus sent messengers ahead of him to prepare things for him. Does that sound at all familiar, that language? This is language borrowed from a famous Old Testament prophecy, Micah 3.1, which Luke had quoted earlier back in chapter 7. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. In Malachi's prophecy, he goes on, then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. But then listen to this. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he 
will be like a refiner's fire. Malachi foretold that the Lord will come to his temple in Jerusalem. And do you hear the fire at the end? That's what the Lord will bring when he comes. Sounds like another reason that James and John might think it appropriate to call down fire from heaven when the Lord is resisted along the way of his coming. Yet Malachi isn't the only Old Testament passage that Luke is borrowing from here in describing how Jesus sent an advance party ahead of him on his trip to Jerusalem and God's temple. Luke is also borrowing from Exodus 23.20 where God tells Moses and the Israelites at Mount Sinai, see, I'm sending an angel ahead of you. And in Greek, angel and messenger are both the same word. So we could just as well say, see, I'm sending a messenger ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Again, we have these same key words that Luke uses. Sending, ahead, messenger, prepare. In Exodus, God goes on to tell how this angel messenger would assume or would assure, sorry, that God's people had victory and that judgment would fall on all of God's enemies. So here we have Another messenger who's coming means judgment for those who oppose God and his people. And so again, it's no wonder that John and James want to call down fire on the Samaritans for rejecting Jesus and the messengers that he sent ahead. The disciples knew the scripture. They knew that Jesus was heading for Jerusalem. They knew that when the Lord sends his messengers to prepare his way, God means business and anyone who stands in the way or rejects him is in for God's judgment. But Jesus says no. Jesus rebukes them. Jesus meekly abandons his plan to go straight to Jerusalem by way of Samaria and he opts for another more circuitous route instead. A route that will in fact be so meandering, it will take 10 more chapters in Luke's gospel before Jesus actually gets to Jerusalem. So question, why in the end did it take Jesus so long to get to Jerusalem after he set his face to go there? Was it because the Samaritans wouldn't welcome him? Or was it because two of his star disciples, James and John, are ready to call down judgment on the Samaritans? which means they don't understand Jesus yet. They haven't listened to what he has been trying to tell them. And so Jesus can't go to Jerusalem yet because he's got a lot more work to do teaching his disciples. But why won't Jesus let them call down fire from heaven to destroy the Samaritans on his way to Jerusalem? Now don't say it's because everyone knows we should be nice and tolerant. And not call fire down on people if we, just because we don't like them. Um, I mean, if you're a pacifist, I guess I could accept that. And I'm not necessarily saying whether Jesus calls us to be pacifists or not. But if you're not a pacifist, then you don't really believe it's always best to be nice and tolerant. Not toward evil people, not toward our enemies, not toward God-haters who are against peace and democracy who are trying to kill us. I mean, you could think of ISIS or IS or whatever we're calling them these days. Um, you could think of the Al-Qaeda Al terrorists. You could think of other enemies of the American people, past or present. Do you think it's okay to authorize our military in some cases to take them out? 
then why not for James and John to take out these Samaritans? Because believe me, these Samaritans had given the Jews just about as much reason to take them out as many of our enemies have given us. But Jesus says no. Why? Well, if it's not just because Jesus was being nice and tolerant, then why won't Jesus authorize an airstrike and let James and John take the Samaritans out? It seems to me it's that because Jesus is headed to Jerusalem to die for the sake of the Samaritans. Just like he died there for terrorists and for all of our other enemies. Listen again to what Jesus has been telling his disciples. Verse 44 and following. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And it's the one who is least among you, all who is the greatest. And then back up in verses 22 and following. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must learn to call down fire from heaven on God's enemies. No. Must deny themselves and take up their cross daily. And follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. And then back in Luke 6, 27 and following. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. And you will be the children of the Most High. Because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Jesus makes it pretty clear. This is the attitude that he's trying to inculcate in his disciples. And meanwhile, James and John are trying to call down fire on their enemies. So what might this look like for us today? Um, to have this kind of attitude that Jesus is trying to teach his followers to have. Let me tell you a few stories of how Jesus' followers have lived this out. The first is from the 1930s, and, and then they'll move more and more toward recent situations. Back in 1938, in a Russian prison, about 250 miserable men were herded together in one small cell. And among them was a man named David Braun. Soon David became aware of a Greek Orthodox priest in their midst. The old man had been thrown into prison because of his faith. And his peaceful, radiant face made him stand out in that awful place like a candle in the dark. It was probably because of this that he became the target for the sarcastic and blasphemous remarks of two of the other prisoners. They were continually harassing him. They bumped into him. They mistreated him. They mocked everything that was holy to him. One day, David received a, a food parcel from his wife. When people are constantly hungry, receiving a food parcel is something that can't be described. It has to be experienced. And David opened the parcel, and as he looked up, he saw the old priest looking at his bread with longing eyes. And David broke off a piece, and he gave it to the priest. And to his amazement, the priest took the bread, broke it, and gave it to his two tormentors. My friend said, David, you are hungry. Why did you not eat the bread yourself? Let me be, brother, the priest answered. 
They need it more than I. Soon I will go home to the Lord. Don't be angry with me. Soon after that, the priest died. But never again in his cell did David hear mockery and blasphemy. The old priest, a true servant of the Lord, had fulfilled his commission. Watchman Nee tells about a Chinese Christian who owned a rice paddy next to one owned by a communist in China. The Christian irrigated his paddy by pumping water out of a canal using a leg-operated pump that uh, you, you sit on and pedal like a bicycle. Every day uh, after the Christian had pumped enough water to fill his field, though, the communist would come out, remove some boards that kept the water in the Christian's field, and let it flow down into his own field. And that way he didn't have to pump. Well, this continued day after day. Finally, the Christian prayed, Lord, if this keeps up, I'm going to lose my rice, maybe even my field. I've got a family to take care of. What can I do? In answer to the request, the Lord put a thought in his mind. So the next morning he arose much earlier in the pre-dawn hours of darkness and he started pumping water into the field of his communist neighbor. Then there. And the four children escaped in the riot. They ran in all directions. And later they found each other. They met up again. And they decided that they would get the best education they could and they would return to China to serve those who killed their parents. The only daughter of a widow, an Australian widow, was also killed in that riot. And the widow said to her friends after she'd heard the news, since I have no other daughters to give to the mission work, I will go myself and I'll set up a school for those who killed my daughter. And now a story from Brendan Manning. A while back, he writes, Rosalind, my wife and I took a day off and decided to play in the French Quarter here in New Orleans. We roamed around Jackson Square sampling gumbo, inhaling jambalaya, and finally stopping for the Pièce de Résistance at the haagen Shrine, a praline pecan Creole hot fudge sundae that induced a short-lived seizure of pleasure. <laughs> As we turned the corner on Bourbon Street, a girl with a radiant smile, about 21 years old, approached us, pinned a flower on our jackets, and asked if we would make a donation to her support her mission. When I inquired what her mission was, she replied, the Unification Church. Your founder is Dr. Sun Myung Moon, so I guess that means you're a Mooney, I said. Yes, she answered. Obviously, she had two strikes against her. First, she was a pagan who did not acknowledge Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. Second, she was a mindless, witless, naive, and vulnerable kid who had been brainwashed by a guru and mesmerized by a cult. You know something, Susan? That was her name, I said. I deeply admire your integrity and your fidelity to your conscience. You're out here tramping the streets, doing what you really believe in. You're a challenge to anyone who claims the name of Christian. Rosalind reached out and embraced her, and I embraced the two of them. Are you Christians, she asked. Rosalind said yes. She lowered her head, and we saw tears falling on the sidewalk. A minute later, she said, I, I have been on my mission here in the quarter for eight days now. 
You're the first Christians who've been nice to me. The others have either looked at me with contempt or screamed and told me I was possessed by a demon. One woman hit me with her Bible. Back in 2004, the rock group U2 released an album entitled How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb. On one occasion, they were discussing their new album with Christian pop singer Michael W. Smith. And Bono, the singer of U2, who's also a Christian, asked Smith, do you know how to dismantle an atomic bomb? And uh, Smith said, of course, he had no idea. And Bono replied simply, with love. With love. Evidently, love can prevent fire from falling from heaven as well. Let's pray. Jesus, your ways are so um, counterintuitive to the way we think and to what naturally arises from our heart and soul. Um, and yet, you call us to follow your example. And we are so grateful that you didn't call fire down on us, though in many ways we have been your enemies. But you loved us instead and died on the cross for us. I pray that you would impart that love, that spirit which took you to the cross, that you would impart it deeply into our hearts, that it would transform us bit by bit, that it would transform the way we view people, the way we see people, the way we think about them in relation to God, the way we treat them. In Jesus' name, amen.